Welcome to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, August 11th. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. So, like a lot of young people, I got myself into trouble with credit cards when I was younger, like in my early 20s. And you know, the problem with borrowing money, especially on something like a credit card, is that at some point, the bill comes due, right? You have to pay that money back. The U.S. economy is at that point. It's been running on credit cards for decades, and we're getting closer and closer every day to the bill coming due. Now, you know, credit cards are seductive. You can get stuff you want now and pay a nice, low monthly payment. I mean, who wants to wait and save when you can swipe and go, right? The problem is this is addictive, and eventually that low monthly payment becomes a high monthly payment. And if you're not careful, it can become an unpayable monthly payment. Throw in a higher interest rate, and things can get really dicey. Now, I know national finances aren't exactly like personal finances. Some of these analogies break down. But there is one fundamental truth. Nothing is free, and eventually the bill comes due. After the Federal Reserve incentivized borrowing with more than a decade of artificially low interest rates and easy money, that day of reckoning is drawing closer and closer and closer. Last week, Fitch Ratings downgraded the U.S. government's long-term credit rating from AAA to AA+. And last Monday, Moody's cut the credit rating of 10 small and mid-sized banks. And I want to talk about this a little bit, and we'll start with the U.S. government. You know, the debt ceiling deal was supposed to stabilize things for Uncle Sam. By suspending the credit limit for two years now, that kind of eliminated the fear of a U.S. default. But the deal apparently wasn't enough to paper over the dysfunction in Washington, D.C. According to Fitch, quote, the repeated debt limit political standoffs and last-minute resolutions have eroded confidence in fiscal management. Fitch noted that the U.S. government doesn't have any kind of medium-term fiscal framework, and it operates under a, quote, complex budgeting process. Now, in other words, what it's saying is that Congress sets the budget on a year-by-year basis. There's no long-term budgeting, right? What they say they're going to do in five years, there's no promise that that's going to actually happen. Fitch goes on and says, these factors, along with several economic shocks, as well as tax cuts and new spending initiatives, have contributed to successive debt increases over the last decade. Now, that almost seems understated to me. (laughs) Successive debt increases over the last decade. Yeah, that's what's happened. In just two months since the debt ceiling deal, the U.S. Treasury has added $1.2 trillion dollars with a T to the national debt. That's an insane amount of borrowing, right? And it isn't going to slow down anytime soon. The Biden administration is blowing through half a trillion dollars every single month. That's the average monthly spending of the U.S. federal government, over half a trillion dollars. The reality is that the federal government faces the double whammy on top of that. We've got declining revenues and, of course, the increasing spending. And 
that is continuing to cause massive budget deficits month after month. The budget deficit for fiscal 2023, which will end uh, at the end of September, is already bigger than the big deficit that we had in 2022. And that deficit in 2022 was bigger than anything that we've seen other than the pandemic years. Maybe we should give Uncle Joe a medal for his stellar efforts. Jeez. Okay, so anyway, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, she said she strongly disagreed with the credit rating cut. Well, yeah, of course she does. Um, She claimed that Fitch used outdated data and that many of the measures the rating company uses, quote, including those related to governance, have shown improvement over the course of the administration with the passage of bipartisan legislation to address the debt limit, invest in infrastructure, and make other investments in America's competitiveness. Now, you'll notice that everything she mentioned involves borrowing and spending more money, right? These monsters actually think that they can solve a debt problem by spending more money. I mean, after all, if the government's doing more, Everything's going to be fine, right? Not. Reminds me of Ronald Reagan when he said that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm with the government and I'm here to help. But, you know, from a practical standpoint, really the credit rating downgrade probably won't have a significant impact on the U.S. government's ability to borrow. It's not like people getting treasury bonds are going to go, oh, oh, that credit rating dropped, going to not buy these bonds now. But, you know, it really should serve as a wake-up call. The world is watching, and it is starting to recognize that the U.S. federal government is on an unsustainable path, and it is on an unsustainable path. The fact that the credit rating is, what, AA plus is absurd. The credit rating for the U.S. government should be junk bonds, uh, because ultimately, this trajectory is going to crash the dollar. And that's really the the downgrade that we should be worried about, not Fitch or Moody's or some uh, credit rating agency. Uh, the real problem is when the world decides to downgrade the dollar because of uh, this malfeasance. But, you know, really this credit rating downgrade and, and what you see in terms of the borrowing and spending in the U.S. government – It's indicative of a broader debt problem in the United States and really the entire world. It's not just the U.S. The entire world is buried under uh, massive piles of debt. And the credit cards are maxing out. The bill is going to come due. And that brings us to the banks. As I mentioned already, Moody's downgraded the credit rating of 10 banks. Um, it also placed six large banks on review for potential down, uh, potential downgrades, and it revised 11 more banks from a stable outlook to a negative outlook. Um, the six big banks on downgrade watch are Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, Northern Trust Corporation, State Street Corporation, Cullen Frost Bankers, Truist Financial Corporation, the U.S. Bank Corp. I've heard of a lot of these banks. So these are the bigger banks. Uh, I'm not going to read the list of smaller banks that uh, were actually downgraded because they're mostly smaller and regional. But, um, you know, Really what this indicates to me is that despite empty assurances that the banking system is sound, the financial crisis that boiled over last spring really is still bubbling under the surface. 
The Moody's report said funding risks and weaker profitability in a higher interest rate environment are squeezing the entire banking sector's credit strength. Quote, many banks' second quarter results showed growing profitability pressures that will reduce their ability to generate internal capital. Uh, Moody's said, quote, a mild recession, unquote, in early 2024 could put further stress on banks and problems in commercial real estate could spill over into the financial sector. I've talked about commercial real estate uh, several times here on the show. I think that's one of the um, areas of potential breakage uh, in the U.S. economy. And of course, that's going to have spillover effects into the banks. And Moody's has noted that. Now, I think it's notable that Moody's only predicts a mild recession. And we're, we're seeing this growing consensus out there in the mainstream that uh, if we have a recession at all, it's going to be mild. And a lot of people are now saying, oh, we're going we're gonna to get away without a recession. The Fed is getting inflation under control, and uh, we're going to have this soft landing, and everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, we have this this uh, really growing optimism out there in the mainstream. But, you know, given that interest rates are at a level that we have not seen since before the Great Recession, and today there is far more debt and malinvestment in the economy now than there was then, as I've said over and over on this show, it remains unclear to me why I should expect a more moderate downturn than we experienced in 08. We are on a very similar trajectory. I was listening to economist Bob Murphy on a podcast the other day, and he was talking about this as well, that this looks a lot like 2006, 2007, where, you know, there's some signs of problems, but everybody's like, ah, nah, it's fine, it's contained, we're going to get through this, no problem. Nobody has offered me any good reason to believe everything is different now than it was then. I recognize that it's not identical. I mean, we don't have the uh, the big subprime housing bubble, but there are plenty of other bubbles and malinvestments in the economy uh, that can pop. The overall dynamics of just tremendous amounts of debt, rising interest rates, that's the same. So anyway, the Moody's report also mentioned the, quote, sizable unrealized economic losses in many banks' bond portfolio. Say that three times fast, many banks' bond portfolios. Um, Moody's said that these could cause investors to lose confidence in these banks. Now, this is exactly what sank Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic Bank, this unrealized loss on bonds where they've got all of these uh, these bonds on their portfolios, uh, their interest rates are rising, the prices of bonds are dropping, and so they're they're showing these losses. Of course, they don't, you know, it's not really a loss until you sell. But it really what it does is it undermines a bank's ability to generate uh, to generate cash. It can't sell those bonds at a big loss, so this created uh, this panic, and we saw what happened with those three banks back in March. Now, as you know, the Federal Reserve managed to paper over this banking crisis with a bailout program, but the most recent Moody's Bank rating downgrades reveal to me at least, that the problem wasn't solved. Again, this financial crisis isn't over. It's just boiling under the surface. They papered over it. They've created an out, an escape valve for banks so that they can deal with it. But it's only a matter of time before other banks get into trouble. And there are a lot of things that could just, you know, 
little flicks that could push things over the edge, like uh, a, uh, a crash in the commercial real estate uh, market, for instance. So the financial crisis is not over. Um, Moody's wrote, as you look ahead, it doesn't, or not, this is not Moody's. Yes, this is Moody's. This is the associate managing director uh, of uh, Moody's. Her name is Jill Satina. She said, as you look ahead, it doesn't feel like the pressure from interest rates being higher and overall monetary policy tightening is close to abating. So these, these, uh, uh, Dynamics aren't changing anytime soon. And she went on and said, we've seen funding strains in the banking sector. The interest rate risk, I think, was something that the U.S. banking sector was not prepared particularly well for. And because of that, we have some challenges at certain banks. Um, and I've said before, there's hundreds of banks that are in trouble. So keep an eye on this because this is a situation uh, that's that's not over not close to being resolved and again this is bad enough but it's indicative of much bigger problems that quite frankly most people seem blissfully unaware of you know debt problems in the banking sector debt problems for the US government are just a small part of a massive debt bubble that was blown up due to decades of artificially low interest rates in the wake of the Great Recession and a tidal wave of easy money that was dumped into the economy during the pandemic. And I think it's interesting that most people blame the shakiness in the financial sector and in the broader economy um, insofar as they're willing to acknowledge their existence. Uh, They blame it on the recent interest rate hikes. And, you know, every once in a while, you'll hear mainstream people or some mainstream economists out there complaining about the rate hikes, saying that the Fed shouldn't have hiked rates so high, that uh, they're concerned that, sure, inflation was a problem, but maybe they've overdone it. So you'll you'll hear that messaging out there. There's, there's worry about the high level of interest rates. But that's not really the problem. The real problem started years and years ago, and nobody was complaining then because they liked it. So after the Great Recession, the Federal Reserve uh, intentionally incentivized borrowing to stimulate the economy, right? It's Keynesian Economics 101. You have a big recession, you dump a bunch of easy money in, you cut interest rates, you intentionally create inflation, you increase the supply of money in the hopes that that will stimulate the economy. You want interest rates low, so people will borrow money. They borrow it, they'll spend it, that makes the economy look good, right? That was the policy. This was intentional. It wasn't a mistake. This is what they set out to do. They set out to stimulate a bunch of borrowing. But this monetary inflation, which really that's what inflation is, it inevitably led to price inflation. Now, of course, they tried to ignore it for a while, and then they called it transitory, but ultimately, Rampant price inflation forced the Fed to raise interest rates because price inflation isn't really something you can sweep under the rug, right? You you feel it every single day. Um, I just got a big hike in in my health insurance, uh, and they're talking about how much the um, the the uh, healthcare costs have gone up because of this inflation. So you can't ignore it. They had to increase interest rates. They had to address inflation. Um, so you know, they did that. And the Fed raised interest rates. And, you know, the central bank has managed to cool price inflation for now. 
but it also threatens to pop the debt bubble. In other words, high interest rates are only a problem today because the Fed incentivized so much borrowing yesterday. I've said this before, what the Fed giveth, the Fed taketh away. You know, basically what has happened is the Fed got the economy addicted to the drug of easy money. Now that it's trying to take the drug away, because, you know, being addicted to drugs isn't a particularly good thing, the addict is starting to get the shakes. We're seeing withdrawal. So, the problem isn't taking the drug away, right? The problem was turning the economy into a junkie. In fact, the drug pusher, the Fed, tried to wean the addict off the drugs back in 2018 after supplying the monetary heroin for a decade, and it didn't work. You know, the addict went into withdrawal. We saw the big stock market crash in the fall of 2018, and the Fed went right back to supplying the drugs. The pandemic hid the effects, and really it let the Fed double down. I mean, once the pandemic started and the governments uh, all shut down the economy, it was party time, baby. But now we're at the point where the bill from more than a decade of party time is coming due. Now, of course, you know, the banking sector, the federal government, uh, those aren't the only two facing massive debt problems. Uh, Non-financial corporations are levered up to the hilt, with the number of corporate defaults already larger than the total in 2022, uh, we're only halfway through the year. And of course, American consumers are buried under a mountain of debt. Uh, Credit card debt topped $1 trillion for the first time ever in the second quarter of this year. And more concerning is the fact that consumers may be close to reaching that borrowing limit that we all know is there. Um, After increasing at a frenetic pace for more than a year, revolving credit suddenly plunged in June. Uh, I did an article this week over at shiftgold.com slash news that highlights the consumer debt uh, that that we've seen. And for the first time in a long time, we saw a big drop in revolving credit. And revolving credit is primarily credit cards. Um, there are other revolving credit things that aren't necessarily credit cards, but that's primarily what it's reflecting. And it actually contracted in June, which shows that people have suddenly stopped putting things on plastic. Um So, to me, that indicates that people are like, whoa, we're maxing this stuff out. And, of course, you've got credit card uh, interest rates that are well above 20%. So, all of this is very problematic for an economy that depends on consumer spending, right? So, check out that article if you want to get more into the weeds on uh, American consumer and household debt. But uh, the, the bottom line is... It's extremely high, and again, it seems like it's coming close to reaching the limit. So, you know, really when you get down to it, with interest rates at levels not seen since 2006, it is inevitable that these debt bubbles will pop. And the recent credit downgrades kind of reflect this reality. It's a canary in the coal mine, right? And we saw what this looks like in 2008. We know it won't be pretty. So anyway, enough of the debt bubble. It's there, and the bill's going to come due. It's inevitable, and it's just a matter of time. So I reckon I should go over the CPI data that came out yesterday. 
Um, honestly, there wasn't anything in it that changed my viewpoint. I'm sure if you went back uh, or if you go back and listen to the uh, Friday Gold Wrap podcast that came out after the last CPI um, data came out, it's probably going to sound a lot the same because I really think we're on a trajectory here. Uh, the road is long, but, you know, as all roads, it has an end. Um, and I think right now we're kind of in this calm before the storm. And I think we may be in that calm for a while, quite frankly. So anyway, the annual increase in the consumer price index uh, actually ticked up in July. So it was higher in July than in June. And that was after two months of big drops. Now, I said this was going to happen just based on math. Uh it's kind of funny because nobody in the mainstream mentioned math uh, over the previous two months when the annual CPI rate was plummeting. But now that it ticked up a little bit, suddenly the math is something you all need to know about, uh, which, you know, selective reporting, right? But uh, basically what has happened is uh, a huge 0.9% and 1.2% month-on-month increases from a year ago have dropped out of the CPI calculation uh, in May and June. So that brought the yearly headline number way down. I mean, all this is is averages, right? You've got 12 numbers that you're averaging. So when you have a big number on the back end that drops out and you add a smaller number on the front end, well, obviously you're going to have big drops in the average. Uh, but the problem is, is that those big numbers are not now all out of the calculation. So going forward, you're going to see smaller numbers dropping out um, and, and numbers added on the front. So you're not going to see these big drops. You may even see, as we did this month, little increases in the annual CPI number. I'll link to an article in the show notes that kind of explains this dynamic a little more carefully if anybody cares to look at it. Um, So anyway, on an annual basis, CPI rose 3.2% in July. So year on year, prices are 3.2% higher than they were last year. Um, And that was a tick higher than the 3% yearly increase that we saw in June. Uh, Looking at month on month, prices rose 0.2%. That's the same pace as we saw in June. And uh, if you take 0.2%, if that happened every single month throughout a year, uh, you would still be slightly above the 2% inflation target, although at this point they would probably call that acceptable. Stripping out the more volatile food and energy prices, this drives me crazy, by the way. You know, I can't strip out food and energy prices from my budget, uh, so I don't know why they pay so much attention to core. I mean, I do understand why they do, because they are indeed more volatile. Uh, You know, you look at something like gasoline prices, um, they're wildly fluctuating and not necessarily just because of underlying inflation. I think that's important. You know, there's that distinction that we always need to keep in our heads. There is inflation, which is an increase in the money supply, that causes price inflation, which is an increase in prices. Monetary inflation causes all prices across the board to rise. And then on top of that, you'll have fluctuations in prices that are due to other market dynamics. So just because the price of oil goes up doesn't mean that it's inflation, right? But it's going to get reflected in the CPI and people are going to call it inflation. 
So it's important to understand that, uh, that distinction. That's why I make such a big deal about these definitions, because it's important to use precise definitions when you're trying to talk about something that's complex, uh, you know, like the economy. But um, I, I think the powers that be have intentionally uh, made the meanings of words murky so that they can, you know, make things sound better than they are. But anyway, uh, when you strip out the volatile food and energy prices, you have core CPI, and it's still running pretty hot. Um, but it is also showing some signs of cooling. Month on month, uh, the core was up zero. 0.2%. That was the second straight month uh, that we saw that print. And the annual core increase came in at 4.7%, uh, down a notch from 4.8% in June. Now, you'll notice that the core is running much hotter than the regular CPI. And supposedly, uh, the core is more indicative of uh, general price inflation. Um all of the numbers that we got uh, in this last report were pretty much in line with mainstream projections. Uh, you know, depending on whose projections you're looking at, uh, they either nailed the projections or were slightly uh, cooler than projected. But you will notice that all of the numbers that we're talking about here are above the Fed's 2% inflation target. So, can't declare victory. <laughs> We're still above 2%. Um, and, of course, CPI disclaimer time. Every time I talk about the CPI, I say this almost verbatim, that you have to keep in mind inflation is worse than the government data suggests. The CPI uses a formula that understates the actual rise in prices. If you used the formula that was in place back in the 1970s, CPI is closer to double the official number. So you're looking at something in the 6 to 7% range uh, with the annual, um, and then core uh, is, is up there close to 10%. Um, kind of digging deeper into the numbers, falling energy prices continue to push overall CPI lower. That's why you see this discrepancy between core and uh, all goods CPI, because energy prices have dropped a lot over the last year, and that is being reflected in the CPI data. Um, the energy index has decreased by 12.5% uh, for the 12 months that ended in July. If you look at gasoline prices, uh, they're down 20.3% from where they were last year. But here's a problem. That trend is reversing, and oil prices are on the upswing. Crude is now trading well above $80 a barrel, and it's up about 30% since it bottomed in May. So it's only a matter of time before uh, we start feeling that pain at the pump. And we're already seeing the impact. Um, gasoline prices in July were up 0.3% uh, month on month. And, uh, you know, in the months ahead, I think this bull market in oil is going to put up upward pressure on the CPI. We're going to see it reflected in those numbers. Um, and, we'll, and we'll see how they try to message that. Um, you know, when you really parse out the numbers, um, they reveal that price inflation it isn't cooling quite as quickly as that headline CPI number, especially over the last two months, would seem to indicate. The fact that the core CPI is barely dropping at all is further evidence that price inflation remains pretty sticky. Now, 
Despite that, the mainstream perceived this CPI report, at least initially, as another indication that the Federal Reserve is winning the war on inflation. Um, I saw numerous times the CPI report described as a soft inflation report. So stocks initially surged on the news. The Dow was up like 400 points in the hour after the CPI data came out. And of course, this is the markets anticipating that this CPI data is going to give the Fed more uh, ammunition to justify ending rate hikes. In fact, the markets now put the likelihood that the Fed will not raise rates in September at about 90%. And this is how we've seen the markets react to cool inflation reports in the past. Everybody gets all giddy because the easy money drug is coming back. But we saw something a little bit different this time around. There was a little bit of a divergence. Um, normally what we've seen, we've, we've seen the stock market go up on these cool inflation reports, but we've also typically seen the dollar weaken and gold rise, uh, and, and for the same reasons. But this time, the dollar did not Weaken. The dollar actually strengthened a bit yesterday, and as a result, uh, we only saw a very small gain in the price of gold. Um, so why is that? Well, maybe the markets are starting to figure out that you know this isn't really the end of the inflation fight, right? Inflation's not dead; uh, it's down, but it's not out, and. Maybe the markets are starting to realize that to some degree, at least the currency markets. And, of course, part of it, too, was that the dollar gained a lot of strength against the yen uh, because, well, Japan's a mess. And uh, they're starting to have to um, deal with the fact that their inflation's running away. But anyway, I... I it was a little bit of a different market reaction. It'll be interesting to see how gold closes out today, if it kind of jumps on the rally bandwagon or if, if, if we start to kind of draw back, because we're already seeing the messaging coming out. No, we're not done with inflation. It's not dead. It's better, but we're not done. We're seeing that hawkish talk out there still. They're trying to keep this anticipation of, uh, of, of uh, ending tightening uh, as low as possible because you know they don't want the uh, the stock market running away because I think deep down they know uh, that they've got this huge bubble on their hands. Anyway, I mentioned this earlier in the show, but I think it's worth reiterating uh, the fact that a lot of people in the mainstream seem to think that since the Fed has gotten a handle on inflation and it can end tightening now, that means the economy can glide into this mythical soft landing and we can avoid a recession. I'm hearing more and more pundits talking about, oh, yeah, I think maybe everything's going to be okay. No recession. You know, maybe a little downturn, a little slowdown, but, but nothing significant. And I think the problem with this mindset is that most people have a memory that goes back about four weeks. And they've completely forgotten what happened in the run-up to the 2008 financial crisis and the Great Recession. They forget that the Fed stopped tightening right around this exact same interest rate at about this same point in the cycle back in 2006. Uh, by 2007, the central bank was already cutting rates, right? We'd already seen the, the collapse in subprime, which they swore up and down was, was contained, but you know, they were cutting rates. There was 
uh, signs of problems in the economy, but they were still saying everything was going to be fine. It wasn't until 2008 that the economy finally collapsed. Now, I've said this over and over and over on the show like a broken record. I've, I've given you that timeline over and over again, but I don't think I can say it enough. You do not see immediate results with a change in monetary policy. The economy is a big ship. It turns slowly, but it does turn. So just because everything looks good now doesn't mean everything is really fine under the surface. So what I'm getting at here is the Fed has already done enough to pop the bubble economy, to pop the debt bubble, to pop the stock market bubble, to wreck the commercial real estate market. It's already done that. As I've already talked about, the financial crisis has already kicked off. It continues to bubble under the surface. It's only a matter of time before something else in the economy breaks. The Fed's rate hikes and the modest balance sheet reduction that we've seen have definitely succeeded in tightening credit and cooling the economy. I saw an article out of the Mises Institute uh, this week talking about how Uh, The money supply has contracted by the most since the Great Depression. So it has definitely taken some of the drug out of the system. But you have to realize how much drug is in there, right? They've taken some upward pressure off of prices, and we can see it in the CPI data. And, you know, honestly, if the Fed could stay this course indefinitely, it might be able to eventually beat price inflation down. But 5.5% interest rates and a small reduction in the balance sheet aren't enough to counteract nearly 15 years of artificially low interest rates and more than $7 trillion in the expansion of its balance sheet since 2008. And the Fed cannot stay on this course indefinitely in an economy addicted to easy money, as we've already talked about. And it's not just the debt problem. You know, that's a big issue with rising interest rates, of course. But there are all kinds of malinvestments that were caused by easy money. You know, imagine you started building a house. Uh, You've got plenty of cash, so you're certain that you can complete the project. But as you go along, you suddenly realize there aren't enough bricks and you can't get any more. Now, this is a simplified explanation. A simplified explanation of what I mean by malinvestments. Because of the easy money distortions, too many people started too many projects needing bricks. Now there's a brick shortage, and all of these projects can't be completed. Oops. And then things break, bubbles pop, a recession ensues. Oh, wait, strike that. Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell say no recession. Forget what I'm saying. I'm just over here talking in the corner. No, seriously, this is why I keep saying that cooling inflation is transitory. Because the moment the economy collapses, and maybe even before, the central bank is going to go right back to artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing. In other words, creating inflation. Heck, Jerome Powell even confessed after the last Fed meeting that it could go to rate cuts before they get to the 2% target. So that's in the cards. I mean, I'm not way out in left field here. Maybe just a little bit out in left field. Now, I know there are people who say I am wrong. They say that the Fed is going to hold course this time. Uh, They say that nothing is going to break in the economy this time. And you know, that's possible. 
But the question is, is it likely? When have the central bankers ever held course before? The past tells us they will do easy money to fix a broken economy every single time. They also give the addict more drugs instead of letting him suffer. That's how they roll. Why would this time be different? Yes, I could be wrong, but I'm probably not. Again, it's possible, but why should we think it's likely? Ultimately, I think the end of the inflation problem today, and that's what people are saying as they look at this CPI data that we're close to the end, I think the end of the inflation problem today means the beginning of a new inflation problem tomorrow, because when you boil it all down, the Fed has not addressed the root cause. It's an economy addicted to easy money that has borrowed itself, put itself under a mountain of debt and the bill is coming due. And that's what I'm preparing for. That's what I think is coming down the road. If you're in agreement and uh, you're in that preparation mode, might be a good time to talk to a Shift Gold Precious Metals specialist. You can call 1-888-GOLD-160. You can email info at shiftgold.com. You can go to shiftgold.com and just go to the Getting Started tab and talk to a Precious Metals specialist online. And they will talk to you about how Precious metals, gold and silver, added to your portfolio can help you prepare for what's ahead. Uh, they're going to talk to you about your investment goals, where you are, uh, and, and help you see how gold and silver might fit into your personal strategy. These guys are fantastic. Uh, it costs you nothing to give them a call. Do it today. And with that, we are going to call it a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on all of the things that I've talked about today and more. And, of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com slash news. If you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on YouTube. Uh, you'll find links to all of this stuff on the show notes page, along with links to all of our social media channels. So uh, like and follow those if you haven't done it already. You can email me at mmaharry, M-M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y at shipgold.com. Love hearing from folks. Appreciate the fact that you guys take the time out of your day to listen to the show. And I uh, hope everybody has a fantastic weekend. And I will be back right here next week.